Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, if you want to turn with me over to Luke chapter 18. Continue on in our series in the Gospel of Luke. We're looking at verses 18 through 27 this morning. And as we turn in God's word, I'm going to pray. So Lord Jesus, we, we approach your word today and we are hungry. God, we, we need your word to sustain and to satisfy and to reveal. Lord, we need you to speak to us today, Lord, because we need you. God, we don't know where to go, Lord, but you do. And I pray this morning that, God, that you would continue to speak and reveal yourself to us in your word. God, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are the good soil to receive your word with faith. And, God, I pray that this morning we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also. God, be with us, we pray this morning. God, help me to communicate, help me to speak your truth. In your name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 18, we're looking at verses 18 through 27. We've just finished in the past few weeks looking at the tax collector and the Pharisee. The parable that Jesus told about the the tax collector who was really screwed up and he knew it. And he came to God and approached God and say, God, I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing in myself and I need your grace and your help from lost without you. And then contrast that with the Pharisee who had everything going on. He's the guy who knew the law. He's the guy who claimed to, to know God and be near to God. And he completely missed it. Came with a set of his credentials came with an understanding that he was better than everybody else. And then we turn and we see Jesus in the little children. We talked about that last week. Just a beautiful passage of Jesus Christ, of the children gathering around Jesus Christ, the disciples too busy, too important, whatever's going on, trying to push away the little children from Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. Bring them near to me. I love these kids. These are the kids that I came for. These children are precious to me. And I love them. I'm going to give my life for such as these. And now we turn to the story of the rich ruler. And we're starting verse 18. And a ruler asked him, now, if you remember, this is in contrast to what we just read about Jesus and the infants, Right? So Jesus with the little children, the most helpless, the most vulnerable in all of society are these little infant children. And now immediately, Luke takes us to the rich ruler, okay, who is the exact opposite of what we've just read about in these infants receiving the reign of Jesus Christ, right? So here we have a contrast between the children and this ruler. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. 
What must I do? So right away, we can see as we read Luke's gospel, is Luke is making a point over and over and over again. Salvation isn't something that we earn. Salvation isn't something that somehow we attain to by way of enough reading of Scripture, of doing enough good deeds, of giving enough money, of, of helping enough people. Salvation isn't something that is earned. Salvation is something that is, is a gift from God. Salvation is God's grace given to us. So right away from the beginning, we see this contrast between the children and now this ruler. And Jesus said to him, this is Jesus' response, verse 19, why do, you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And so Jesus confronts this guy about calling him good because the understanding was that only God was good. And so it was, this, it was a bit of flattery this guy was coming to Jesus. It's like him coming to Jesus saying, Oh, most excellent, wonderful teacher, please instruct thy student. Jesus is like, what do you, come on. He's, he's calling this guy out here saying, look, only God is good. You know that and I know that. Now, you're not wrong for calling me good because, yes, I am good. And, yes, I am God. But he knew this guy was getting to something that Jesus says, look, you're trying to flatter me. And he takes him back to the Ten Commandments. But only the Ten Commandments, only the commandments that mention his relationship to other people. He doesn't mention the Ten Commandments about not using the Lord's name in vain or having the idols before the Lord. And so he takes those, him back to the, the commandments that are dealing with his relationship to other people. Okay? So now in verse 21 we read this. And now this is the response of the ruler. And he said, the ruler, all these I have kept from my youth. Wow. That's amazing. This guy is, this guy is making a claim pretty close to perfection. So here he is confronted with God's word, God's law, and he says, you know what? I'm really glad to hear that because I've done all those things. Man, this is amazing. I've kept the full commandments of God my entire life. Man, this is going to be easy for me. But we have to remember the context to which Jesus is talking to this guy in. So at the beginning of chapter 18 and verse 9, we read that he also told this parable to some who had trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then in verse 11, it's the Pharisee who prayed, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of these sinners. And that wasn't where Jesus was going. J.C. Ryle writes this, It is impossible to imagine an answer more full of darkness and self-ignorance. The person who made this claim could have known nothing correctly either about himself or God or God's law. When confronted with God's perfect law, we fall short. Every single one of us falls short 
of the glory of God. That's a universal truth. Every person that has ever lived on the face of the earth, apart from Jesus Christ, has fallen short of the glory of God, has fallen short to honor God with their full lives all the time. And the due penalty for that is death, is separation from God. No one can say, I've been obedient to all of these from my youth. That is a person who's been deceived. Verse 22, moving on. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, Jesus has just been talking about his love for his neighbor. And this guy says, you know what? I have fully loved my neighbors. I fully obeyed your word in regards to my love for my neighbors. Now, Jesus says, look, let's talk about your love for your neighbors in. Okay, I want you to take what you have, sell it all, and give it all to your neighbors. You want to know what love is? You want to provide and care You want to be able to supply the needs for your neighbors because there are poor all around you? This is the cost of discipleship. It's that there would be nothing that would come between us and the Lord. That there is nothing that would come to a place of us saying, God, you know what? I'm going to follow you, but only so far. God, you can can touch any area in my life and direct any part of my life except this one area. God says when we come before Him as children, there are no adults in God's kingdom. Right? There's only children of God. There's no adults of God. Only children of God. When we come to Him as His children, we surrender everything. There is nothing off limits for God. It's an exclusive relationship. There's no other idols before God. There's no other competing passions for God. We surrender everything to Him. We hold nothing back from Him. And everything else takes its place beneath Him. He alone sits on the throne of our lives and of our hearts. Nothing else is to take that place. Luke 14, Jesus spoke. He said this, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus was testing to see where this ruler's passion, where this ruler's life really lied. Where was it? Where was this ruler's life and passion? Was it with God or was it with his possessions? That was the true test. Was it God? Was it possessions? When we come to Jesus Christ, we're not called to try harder, to do more, to serve more effectively. When we come to Jesus Christ, we're called to surrender. We are called to surrender everything. That we hold an open hand to Almighty God, to all of our life, and say, God, whatever you want to do, do it. My hands are completely open to you. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. When we take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ, where are we going? We're following Jesus to the death. That's why we have the cross. We're following Jesus to surrender all of our life to Him. That all the competing things in our life, 
things that we desire, things that we love, it takes a second place to Jesus Christ. There's nothing that gets between us and our walk with God. But this is where I want to look at my second point. Is that Jesus Christ in this, as he is confronting this rich young ruler, he's calling him to faith. This is the amazing part about the grace of God. That knowing that this guy has got a love and a passion and desire for his own material things, for his money, for his power, for his influence, whatever he has... Jesus Christ is yet calling him to a place of faith. Look at what he says. He says this in verse 23. I'm sorry. He says, sell all you have, and he says, and you will have treasure in heaven. That's his promise. He's saying, look, I'm not asking you just to give up for the sake of giving up. I'm asking you to trade up. I'm asking for you to give up what you think is most precious, what is most important in your life for something that is far greater than you can possibly imagine. I'm asking you to trade up for eternal things. I'm asking you to trade the temporary for that which is eternal. I'm asking for you to trade up the things that are going to go away, that are going to fade away, that are going to die, that are going to get rusty and old and lose its luster and significance. And I want you to trade it for something that is eternal and glorious and majestic. That is what I'm asking you to do. I'm making you a promise. Give up these things and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. He is calling him into relationship with himself. He says, come follow me. Come be with me. Come walk with me. I want you to know me and to follow after me and to come into relationship with me. I am not only offering you some kind of treasure in heaven that you can't possibly imagine, but I am offering you relationship. Which in John 17 says, this is eternal life, that we would know Jesus Christ. This is eternal life. And it's only possible when we forsake everything else that would compete with Jesus Christ. This kind of eternal life is not possible if we hold on to all these other things and then somehow try to tack Jesus on to an already already full life and busy schedule. It's not like Jesus says, okay, we'll take a little bit of God because I don't want to go to hell. He says, no, I want you to surrender everything to me that I would be your passion, your life, and your purpose. This is what I want for you because this is for your ultimate good. This is for your ultimate good and for, his, for God's glory. And the Pharisee in the previous verses, he came with a list of accomplishments. God, look what I've done. I've, I've fasted. I've kept your law. I'm not like these other guys. The tax collector came to Jesus Christ and begged for mercy. And he walked away justified before the Lord. And like an infant who brings nothing to the table, like an infant who is desperate, in a desperate need of everything, so now Jesus is calling this ruler to give up and to forsake his influence and his power and his money and his job 
to follow him. Before we look at this ruler's response, I want us to be reminded of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 13. He said this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Those are Jesus' words. And so he is confronting this guy with this ultimate truth that you cannot hold on to what you have and get the very thing that you're asking for. You've got to let go of the things that you have in order to possess and have eternal life. Let's look at his response in verse 23. But when he heard these things, this is the, the rich ruler, when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. It was impossible for, impossible for him to serve both God and money. And when it came down to obedience to God, to submission to God, he got to a place where he said, I just can't do that. I can't do it. I, the things that I have have taken first place in my life. I have a different master. See, Jesus, you don't understand. I've got this master in my life that is too good for me to get rid of. And I'm not asking for you to take that place. I just want to kind of tack you on to the side and hopefully it works out. And Jesus is saying, no, what you don't understand is this. You cannot have two masters. There's only one master in your life. And that master for you, for this ruler, was his money, was his possessions. And Jesus is saying, you've got to get rid of that master in order to have a new master. There's no side jobs in this kingdom. You only serve one master. And it was God or money. And this ruler refused to give up his riches. Jesus offered him an opportunity to trade up and offered an opportunity of relationship. But this ruler, at this point in time, was unwilling to give those things up. What a sad commentary. He became sad, for he was extremely rich. Let's look at what Jesus' response to this ruler's downcast look and refusal. He says this in verse 24. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, Jesus concerned. He's, he's caring for this guy. He's like, no, I want you so bad. I, I'm not going to force you to follow me. There is an opportunity of relationship, and you're refusing it. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so there's been some confusion about this statement. In times past, I've heard people say things like there is a, a needle's eye gate in Jerusalem that a, a camel would have to camel had stuff on its back, the camel would have to take the stuff off his back, pass through that gate to get into Jerusalem or a different different city. This isn't this isn't what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, look, you've got to unload some stuff to get in. 
what he's saying is this is impossible. He's saying apart from Almighty God intervening, this is impossible. They've never found a needle's eye gate or anything like that in Jerusalem. He's using hyperbole to make a point. He's, tell, he's telling them, look, it is absolutely impossible for this rich guy or really anybody else to come to Almighty God on their own terms. You can't do that. You can't come to God on your own terms. Like the Pharisee in the previous verses. You can't come to God and say, God, look what I've done. Look who I am. Look, look the things that I've accomplished in my life. Now surely you'll accept me because of what I've done. Jesus is saying, that's not how it works. It is impossible for us to come on our own terms. And so he's using a camel, which was the largest animal in Palestine, with one of the smallest things, a needle's eye, to make a point. It is impossible, utterly impossible. I want to remind us of the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Then in verse 24 of chapter 6, Jesus says this, Woe to the rich, for you have received your consolation. When we are satisfied with the things of the world, when we're satisfied with the things, with our possessions, with our job, with our family life, we really see very little need for Jesus. When we have nothing, we have nowhere else to go but Jesus Christ. When we surrender everything to Him, when it all belongs to Him, we have nowhere else to go. Think about the moments in your life when you've been at the lowest, when things are breaking up around you. You have nowhere else to look but up. It's amazing. When we hit low points in our life, man, we, we draw near to Jesus Christ because we have nowhere else to go. And he's saying, I want you to live your life in such a way that we turn to him for everything. There be, there's no areas of our life we say, you know what, I'm pretty complete in this area, Jesus. No thanks. I'll take it from here. Mark Powell writes this. The dilemma for rich people is this. Lepers and blind people want to be set free from that which inhibits them. Rich people usually do not. And I remember when I was on a missions trip in the Dominican Republic, and we would pray, we'd, after, we'd do like a, a drama, we'd present the gospel, and then afterwards we'd say, if you are sick, come forward. We believe in a God who can heal. And people would come forward, and we'd be with a bunch of high school students, and we'd pray for the sick people. Because they had no doctors, no hospitals, they were in poverty, there was no hope. And we would see people getting healed. And I remember in particular one guy who came up who had a massive chest congestion, just laboring to breathe, and just I put my hand on his chest, and I could just feel just the the congestion in his chest and his just trying to breathe to, to get a breath. And as we talked through a translator, just discovering this guy just had a whether it was allergies, I don't know what the deal was, but he had some major sickness and some major problems. And he could not afford to go to a doctor to get an inhaler or a Z-Pack or whatever you needed to get to get better. He didn't have any of that stuff. He had his only hope in this moment was Jesus Christ. 
And so as we prayed for this guy, as I had my hand on his chest praying for him, we could physically feel his chest opening up, the congestion going away. And by the time we were done praying for this guy, he was completely normal in his breathing. And he was shocked. This guy was really surprised, like, wow, that was amazing. But thinking about it, I think he had nowhere else to go but Jesus Christ. There was no other hope for this guy. He realized that. And he came forward and said, guys, I have no hope except for Jesus to heal me. And God met him. And God brought a miraculous healing to this guy on that morning in the Dominican Republic. It was Jesus or nothing. And this guy clung to Jesus Christ. And Jesus delivered him. Jesus healed him. It was absolutely amazing. But this is the way in which God desires for us to live our lives. A complete and total dependence upon Jesus Christ. That there would be nothing else in our lives that we would say, you know what, I'm fine here. I go about my own way. I'll do my own things. Thank you very much. That we would have a dependence upon Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the the disciples and those around, what is their reaction? Verse 26 and 27. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But Jesus said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. So Jesus says this, it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God and panic sets in. There is a bit of prosperity theology going on at the time they had, they had read the book of proverbs which is an which is an amazing book but they understood that the blessings of god that god's provision god's abundance in this life meant that you were favored by god and that god was you were near to god because of the blessings that you had god truly was blessing you because you were a righteous person and so they they heard this and thought whoa 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 if the rich people who are nearest to God and are blessed by God have no hope of getting in, then what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us poor people who are not blessed by God? Is there any hope for anybody? I think we still believe a bit of this prosperity gospel today. Churches and ministries built upon this understanding that the righteous, the really good receive innumerable blessings where the rest of us kind of linger in this area of no man's land because we're not near to the Lord. But hopefully as we have worked our way through Luke's gospel, you've seen that that is not the case. That is not the case for us. Jesus' point was this, it is only possible with God. That is the only possible conclusion i want you to come to it is only possible with god there is no other way but through jesus christ i was talking to a a gentleman this weekend this week by the name of bruce bruce was describing to me some different encounters he had while he was using drugs and just different visions he's had and just just a bunch of stuff that was going on in his life in the past And it came to a point in our conversation where I said, Bruce, Jesus says 
that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That there is no other way for us to be saved but by Jesus Christ. That's it. There's no other way. And it was this point in this conversation, he didn't, he didn't surrender to Christ at that moment, but the route through which God has provided salvation to us is through Jesus Christ alone. It is through, it is through Jesus Christ, and it requires from us a response of faith. It requires from us faith like the tax collector who came to God and begged for God's mercy because he had nowhere else to go. Faith like the children in the previous verses with simple, heartfelt trust in Almighty God. Faith isn't the place just where we enter God's salvation. Faith is the place where we live because our daily temptation is to revert back to a performance mentality. Hey, I had a good week this week. Quiet times every day. Can't wait to get to church. Things are going to be well. Or, man, I had a rotten week. Fought with my spouse. Yelled at the kids. Never opened my Bible. You come to church and it's like, oh, I just, man, God's angry at me. Man, He is angry. He doesn't even want me here today. But the message, the good news of Jesus Christ is that regardless of how I feel, God's love for me doesn't change. Regardless of how I act, God has still chosen to clothe me with His righteousness. Regardless of what I desire, God has chosen to call me His son and His daughter and fill me with His Holy Spirit. And my word for us as a church this morning is exactly that. The gospel is good news, not just for when we were saved, but for us every single day, week in and week out. That no matter what we have done this week, as we come to Jesus Christ, we are clothed with His righteousness. That no matter what we feel or think, God has still chosen to call us His children. And to lavish us with His love and His grace and His mercy every single day. And this is the fight of faith for us. Because we'll get to a place where we say, you know what? After what I've just said to my spouse, I know that God is angry at me. There is no way that God would accept me. He is getting ready to backhand me right now. And man, I'm going to get it. And God says, in your disobedience... In your rebellion against me, in the pain that you've inflicted on the people around you, I still love you. And that is exactly why I sent my son. I am not shocked or surprised by what you've said or what you've done. I'm not put off. I'm not disgusted by you. I'm not going to shove you away from myself. I am actually in your disobedience and in your sin. I am going to draw you near to me. And I'm going to wash you clean I'm going to purify you. And I'm going to stand you up again so that you can stand before me in my grace and in my mercy and my love. This is the unbelievable grace of God. And it's being witnessed by us in this interaction with this ruler. 
Jesus Christ, knowing that this guy has an idol of money and possessions and power, he knows that this guy loves other things, that God does not sit on the throne of his heart, and he's saying, trade up, give it up, turn away from it, and come follow me, and I will give you relationship. Come follow me, come be with me. And that's the same offer that he's giving to us every single day. There is a fight to be fought for the fight of faith that we would trust in Jesus Christ, commit and live our lives before Him, regardless of how I feel, what I desire, what my obedience has looked like for that week. See, Jesus, in the next few verses, verses 31 through 33, we're going to get to those in a couple weeks, He's about to remind the disciples of what he came to earth to accomplish. See, in those verses, Jesus begins to lay out exactly what is going to happen as he, he, as he comes into Jerusalem. He is going to be beaten and betrayed and sentenced to death. He's going to die on a cross in our place for our sin, for our disobedience. That is why he is on the cross. He has come to accomplish salvation, and redemption for us. This is the unbelievable grace of God. That God would call us out of darkness and into light. That God would take our heart that is dead and cold and indifferent towards Him and give us a new heart and new desires and new passions for Him. That He brings us into relationship with Himself. And this is all not because of what we have done or what we have accomplished, but because of Jesus Christ and what He has done and what He has accomplished for us at the cross. This isn't a message of try harder, but to surrender everything. We're going to pass out the communion elements this morning. We're going to do that now. And I'd like us to, as we approach this, what areas of our lives do we need to completely surrender to God? It's different for everybody. For this ruler, he said, give up everything. For the rich guy, Zacchaeus, in a couple of verses, Zacchaeus says, I'll give half. And God says, great, well done. He didn't have to give up everything, just half. But God knew exactly where each person's heart was. And it may not be money right now for you or I. It might be a relationship might be a status at work. Whatever that thing is that prevents us, we find our, our trust, our life. We need to surrender that to God. And you know what? It's probably going to hurt. When God puts his finger on something in our own life, it's not easy. God is doing something in our lives. And he's calling us to himself and he's calling us to surrender. Give everything to him. So as we distribute the communion elements, I want us to take a moment and I'm going to pray. I'd like us to pray together. A prayer of surrender. A prayer of hope in His goodness, in His faithfulness to purify us, to save us, to deliver us. No matter where we are or what we've done. So, Lord Jesus, Lord, I want to ask as a church 
as your people, as your body, that we would hold nothing back from you. Jesus, that you would take the rightful place on the throne of our lives. Lord, that whatever it is that is preventing us from fully loving, serving, walking with you, God, that you would put your finger on that very thing this morning. God, that we could repent, that we could turn from those things, just like you were calling the ruler to do. You were calling him to a place of repentance, to forsake those things and come after you. The same way, God, you're calling us to forsake those things and and turn and run to you. God, no matter how radical it is or how simple it is, Lord, I pray that you would help us. God, help us to come before you this morning. Help us, Lord. Speak to us, your people. As they continue to pass out the elements, I'd like just for us to take a moment individually now and ask God to do business with us that God would continue to speak to us and reveal to us those areas that we need to surrender and submit to him. Maybe it's your whole life. Maybe it's an area. Then Matt's going to close us with taking the elements together.